Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we head to Taiwan, where voters are casting ballots in an election being watched right around the world. Beijing has made it clear it wants the incumbent party out and the return of a leader more favorable to China. The stakes are high. We get a preview from Taipei. Property taxpayers in Toronto got a bit of a jolt this week with the recommendation of a 10.5% property tax hike in 2024, one that could jump to 16.5% if the feds don't come through with extra money for some services the city is picking up. It's the latest city to lean on some pretty large tax hikes to try to fill a growing budget hole. But are there other ways that municipalities should be looking to raise funds? We find out. Emergency department physicians right across the country are sounding the alarm once again, calling what's unfolding in the country's ERs this year a crisis and one that is only getting worse. Why? What impact is it having on care? And how can decades of neglect be reversed at long last? But first, a huge swath of the country copes with a deep freeze and some real bad winter weather from Ontario and Quebec, where there's been snow, to the prairies, where it's a chilly minus 40 and below to a comparably warm but still freezing west coast where it's been about minus nine in vancouver and victoria we look into what's being done to protect the most vulnerable from the elements Tens of millions of Canadians are coping with a real blast of winter tonight. A vengeful return after a warmer-than-usual December. In Quebec and Ontario, it's snow. It's been falling for several hours in parts of Ontario at this point. And here's Environment Canada meteorologist Gerald Chong. We do have a snowfall warning for southern Quebec, for Montreal. Uh, We do have a winter storm warning uh, from Ottawa, uh, north of the the Ottawa Valley, including the Ottawa Valley, back towards Lake Huron, uh, parts uh, north of Toronto. Yeah, it's snowing. Well, further west, of course, across the prairies in BC and north of the territories, it's the cold again. It's bitterly cold. The winds are making it even chillier. Multiple daily temperature records have fallen in Alberta and BC. In Vancouver and Victoria, it was a frigid by West Coast standards, minus nine. I'm sure that sounds pleasant if you're sitting in Calgary tonight, but still downright polar in Alberta and Saskatchewan. Environment Canada says temperatures in Edmonton dropped to minus 37 this morning. And many and may hit minus forty, even a little bit chillier overnight. Uh, here's meteorologist Samantha Modi. What is considered a normal temperature for like the middle of January in the Edmonton area is highs of minus eight and lows of minus sixteen. Into early next week, warmer temperatures are expected. We're still looking at minus teens, which is is quite well below what is considered normal for this time of year. So a little bit warmer, but uh, certainly not warm. And this kind of cold, of course, can be extremely dangerous for the most vulnerable. Tim Pasma is with the Hope Mission at Edmonton, and he joins me now. Tim, thanks so much. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Uh, We knew this was coming, I guess, to a certain extent, but wow, it is cold in Edmonton. What's the protocol? What happens when it gets this dangerously cold? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. Well, a lot of things happen. Um, usually the, the city of Edmonton will activate their extreme weather policy, um, which opens up uh, various different public spaces, warming centers, uh, things like that. And uh, all the shelter operators, um, you know, expand capacity uh, usually. And usually uh, that capacity is increased in, in concert with the provincial government as well, uh, just to make sure that anybody coming to our doors um gets a safe place to sleep and um, is is protected from the cold weather. 
Yeah, I, do, I know there's been a lot of talk, of course, in Edmonton over the past few weeks about encampments and the way they're being cleared and where people can go and people being in encampments that are slightly more out of the way. Is there an active search for people on, on nights like tonight to try to make sure that everyone is at least checked in on? Well, there's there are uh, mobile outreach teams that do go out into the community to look for people that are in vulnerable positions. We have um, a, a Hope Mission Rescue Van that goes throughout the city of Edmonton and area uh, and identifies people that appear to be in distress and, and provides transportation or other items to them to support them. There's also um, in Edmonton there's a, a 211 phone line, and so people can call 211 and press three. Uh, which gives you a dispatcher to, um, you know, to know if there's anybody in distress and then our team will go and assist them. So there are some protocols in place, but no doubt it's, uh, it's, it's, it's very dangerous temperatures. And we have seen a major, major increase in the number of people looking to use our services. Right. Uh, yeah, some thoughts for the people in the van tonight. That, that must be cold work as well, but, but such necessary work. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's critical. I mean, you need to have uh, a system of care to really um, manage this type of situation, especially with the growing needs of uh, the unhoused population in, in Edmonton and, and also across Canada. Um, so having that range of options for people uh, is really, really important. Yeah, because I, because I mean, throughout this this whole situation, and this is by no means an Edmonton only situation. There are lots of encampments right across the country where people don't really want to go into the shelter system for a number of reasons. I suppose on nights like tonight, it's imperative to try to convince people that this would be a night just to just to get a get a warm roof, get a roof over your head. Yeah, and that, exactly. And there's there's it's quite often the case uh, that there even the people that would want to stay in encampments will in this temperature. Uh, ultimately come and seek shelter. Um, there might be a few holdouts there, but largely um, we see a lot of people that typically might not want to use shelter services. Uh, they're definitely coming to access services in this cold. Yeah. Do you have enough room? I know that you're open year-round and you you uh, sort of add capacity when it gets this cold, but do you have enough room for everybody that's coming to see you? Yeah, we do, uh, but it's it's very it's very busy and very tight. Uh, there and there is also other shelter operators throughout Edmonton, but we we provide the largest number of beds. So we have uh, 850 24 seven uh, shelter beds uh, at our in our two facilities downtown Edmonton. Um, but then we also do add uh, we've added an extra 150 spaces this year just because of the additional need that we've seen. So we've. We've been pretty close um, to the thousand uh, number of our of the the high number of occupancy. We had 966 people last night, so oh, wow. it's uh, extremely busy. Yeah, I'm sure you speak to other shelter operators who are experiencing exactly the same thing. Specifically now in in, in Alberta and Saskatchewan, where it is just so frigid. Although out here on in Vancouver too, when it hits minus 10 and so on, that's really cold by standards out here as well. So I imagine that all shelters are experiencing what you're experiencing tonight. Yeah, it's. I mean, it, it is a regular thing that we hear when we talk to other operators in, in Edmonton or in other cities. You know, having having an extreme cold or extreme weather policy is really important because, you know, more often now we're also seeing extreme heat in the summer or, or right. wildfire smoke and other challenges. So um, the growing needs um, of the unhoused population, but also with uh, temperatures and climate change, there's other challenges that arise from that.
Right. And I imagine that just means you have to be more, you have to be flexible, right? With the people that come to see you, as you mentioned, it's becoming more and more complex. And I suppose that puts a certain burden on you to be more, to be accommodating in ways that perhaps we wouldn't have thought of 20 years ago. Well, and I think, I think that's one of the conversations that's happening now is, is how do we develop a shelter system that meets the needs of the people that uh, are looking to access services? And we see a, a high level of need with, you know, ranging from uh, mental health and addiction challenges to, uh, you know, people dealing with past trauma and other, other circumstances. So um, the needs of the people that we're seeing coming to our doors really do vary. And we need to have those appropriate supports on site. So the the model of uh, what used to be more of a mat and a meal and a shower um, is really an outdated model. And it needs to be wraparound supports from professional medical staff, uh, social workers, housing staff, other people that know how to navigate the system, know how to work with the people that are coming that have those uh, mental health challenges or other needs, and really provide the support they need because ultimately shelters can be a gateway to ending homelessness and accessing the appropriate supports. So that's what we're trying to position ourselves to do. And and a reminder tonight of how vital your services are. Well, my best to your team out in the van tonight and to you and to keep up the good work. Thanks so much. Well, thank you very much. We appreciate it. For some extreme cold, though, is not a chance to, is not an opportunity to, or it's not a cause to go hide. It's a chance to go out and do some fun stuff. Kyle Britton is the former Alberta Bureau Chief uh, for the Weather Network. He's been out today testing out the deep freeze. Uh, you know, when it during a heat wave when reporters will fry an egg on the pavement? This is the exact opposite. Tell me if you can identify this sound. is the sound of something pounding a, a nail, right? Yeah, the first sound is something pounding a nail, but it isn't a hammer. Uh, it's it's a banana. <laughs> Kyle Britton, last we spoke to Kyle, he was just back from the wildfires. This is, of course, a very different uh, situation tonight. Kyle, thanks so much for your time. Welcome back. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. That is some cold. I mean, that is, I, I know you know your weather inside out, but it's uh, some of those numbers are hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine how cold it is when it's down around minus 40. Yeah, it's it's really cold here in Alberta. I'm actually just pulling up right now uh, the current temperatures across the province. And already, I mean, it's 8 local time. Uh, at 8 local time, we've got several stations I can see here already are below minus 40. Some well on the way, possibly to minus 50 tonight. Some weather models are showing that that's a possibility in parts of Alberta. So that's that's going to be pretty cold. But if you can believe it, that's still not anywhere near our record low temperature. Our monthly all-time record and also our annual all-time record in uh, in, in Alberta is minus 60.3, and that was back in 1911 up in Fort Vermilion. But nonetheless, wow. I mean, below minus 40, it doesn't make much of a difference, does it? No, it's just cold. You did some incredible stuff today because, again, you know, most people will just sort of duck for cover when it's this cold. But you were out sort of testing what this cold means to to stuff. And the banana hammer, of course, was remarkable because it actually looked like it was working. The banana hammer is pretty funny. You know, I guess theoretically you could freeze a banana in a freezer or in warmer temperatures. It's just it's not as fun when it's when it can freeze solid, like I literally just put it outside for like an hour and then it was frozen through rock hard and I pounded a nail into a board. It went right through the other side and, and didn't break the banana. So, I mean, it's legit. 
Yeah, you'll have to call Dole and let them know there's other uses for their products than uh, than simply bananas. You did some other stuff too. There was a pair of jeans that looked like they were hard as steel. Okay, yeah. So the the frozen pants, yeah, they, they actually ended up on Jimmy Fallon a few years ago, and we were throwing them around okay. like frisbees. The last time it got down to like minus thirty five. Uh, yeah, I mean they they make uh, some interesting noises. You can I made a full on. You could hear it at the start there that sound clip. Uh, you know, I made a full-on little percussion ensemble out of that with uh, with yeah. the frozen pants and the frozen shirt. You can hit one with a drumstick against a brick wall, and it makes some fun noises. Yeah, the Banana Hammer Blues, you called it. You did some other stuff today, too. I mean, it's interesting to go out and sort of take advantage of this. This is part of what you do. But it's interesting to to sort of take take what is a very cold day or a very hot day and just figure stuff out. So you had some stuff with toilet paper as well that I think was frozen in midair, as far as I could tell. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That was a pretty fun one. The uh, the suspended levitating toilet paper roll. That's a that's a new one for me. I've in the past frozen, you know, uh, itchy band noodles and and uh, pasta and even an egg. You can levitate an egg by freezing part of the yolk. Um, but uh, yeah, today was the toilet paper roll. I was pretty surprised that I could get it up uh, about you know three or four feet off the ground. So. Uh, yeah, check it out on Twitter. It's uh, it's pretty entertaining what you can do. You know, it's the silver lining. You know, it's it's so brutally cold out there. As long as you're keeping warm, you know, you can do all kinds of fun things. You can freeze, blow bubbles, and then watch ice crystals kind of crawl across the surface of the bubble. And um, it's it's quite fun. Uh, I, I yeah. find you know, it's below about minus 25. It's, it's so cold that it's almost kind of fun. And that's just me. I'm a little bit, I guess, masochistic, but... <laughs> Well, it, but no, it's a good way of treating it. I was laughing because, of course, it's it's about minus nine out where I am, and that's cold by by Vancouver Island standards. But yeah. they had the reporters out sort of trying to do some of that boiling water stuff. And of course, nine, minus nine just isn't cold enough, right? So I was thinking oh, gosh. of the stuff you did. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I wouldn't recommend the boiling water unless it's below minus twenty five. I I was actually thinking about doing a little video on how not to scald yourself because I. But then I was thinking you don't want too many people trying it if you, you know, it's just it, it's. The main problem with the boiling water thing, besides if it's not cold enough, uh, you know, you'll throw it in the air and the wa- it'll just land back on you as water and probably still very hot water. Um, right. The other problem is that people use like a, they use pots or cup mugs that have a handle and the way that you throw it, it ends up kind of bringing the water back toward you. So I always say use a thermos if you're going to do it because that keeps it going, you know, 180 degrees away from you, right? So good advice for the next time I'm in a place it gets that cold. I guess a reminder though that thing, a lot of stuff just, you know, there's such a strain on the, on the on the power grid tonight. A lot of stuff kind of doesn't work properly in this cold. I mean, that's some really intense cold you're experiencing right now in Alberta. Yeah, even though it's not like all-time record cold, we're breaking daily records. But again, yeah, once you get below minus 30, you start seeing things like water main breaks. And that's no fun when you can see like the fire department responding to, you know, just gushing water all over the place and it freezes instantly. That can't be any fun. And of course, yeah, I mean, yeah, I was just checking this evening, uh, NMAX power here in Calgary reached an all time record high for winter uh, peak demand uh, yesterday. And so I suspect given that temperatures are going to be even colder um, tonight, possibly even the, the following night, uh, we could be setting even more records. So you certainly wouldn't want the power to go out in this in this kind of weather. It'd be very, very dangerous very quickly. We're not anywhere near uh, maxing out yet, but it's still getting up there. So, I mean, of course, there's that. And then there's the vulnerable populations. I mean, we've got a lot of warming centers across Calgary and Edmonton, but uh, still, nonetheless, it's a very challenging time. Yeah. And what are your plans for the weekend? Are you going to be doing more of this or are you going to sort of hibernate? Do you hibernate at all when it gets this cold? 
You know, I like bad weather. I have a YouTube channel called Bad Weather Kyle. Check it out. Uh, I try to go find the worst weather. So I'm going to be out there. I'm going to be looking for, uh, I've, you know, I was in Lytton uh, June 29th, 2021, uh, the day before right. that fateful day when it, when it reached 49.6. So I've experienced uh, near 50 Celsius. I want to experience negative 50 Celsius. So I'll be looking for that this weekend. Uh, thank goodness my vehicle's parked in a warm parkade, and I don't plan on turning it off. Uh, so, you know, it should be fine. But, uh, yeah, I've tried, having tried the, the, by the way, I've tried the uh, the egg on the pavement. Spoiler alert, it, that was in Lytton, and uh, it doesn't actually boil. Like, it's super dis- disappointing. Like, I put it in a hot, like a black cast iron pan. I tried it on the black pavement. It just sort of evaporates and dehydrates, but it doesn't, boil so if anyone ever tells you oh yeah you could fry eggs on a on the pavement it's so hot well i've tried it in nearly 50 celsius and it doesn't work so you know getting out there trying all the cold experiments that's that's my jam so if you keep an eye on twitter this weekend there'll be at least one more popping up uh wherever i find the coldest temperatures kyle have a great weekend thank you cheers take care Uh, We've known for years that Canada's emergency care system is in crisis. Ever-increasing numbers of patients, too few beds, chronic staffing shortages, and the usual seasonal surges as as we're seeing now. And this year, can you imagine the alarm is being sounded louder than ever before? This week, the Canadian Medical Association released a special statement followed by the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians today calling on ministers of health to do something to ease long wait times and to try to tackle what is becoming an ever more precarious environment in ERs nationwide. Quote, no one wants to spend 20 hours waiting for the care they or their loved ones need, uh, the CMA statement read. Across the country, there are real signs that ERs or EDs, emergency departments, are struggling in Quebec, for example. Uh, Occupancy rate is well above 100%. In Ontario, a lot of hospitals report super long wait times. Uh, Ottawa as well, one patient there was told it would take nearly 20 hours to be assessed by someone. Uh, You know, and there's a lot of different things going on here. Part of the problem is there's isn't enough long-term care. Uh, so you have sort of access block where patients who could be moved on to long-term care instead, instead stay in emergency departments. Uh, and that means not a bed for someone else. Uh, pay, you know, staff are burnt out. It's been a long haul right through the pandemic into now. There are a lot of problems. And right now, there doesn't seem like there are a lot of solutions. You'll remember that there was a big meeting. Um, you know, people who advocate for emergency departments met with health ministers back in the fall and asked them for a number of things that hasn't been responded to yet. Uh, we thought we'd get an update. Dr. Jill McEwen is an attending emergency physician at Vancouver's General Hospital, and she's the past president of the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians. And she joins me now. Dr. McEwen, thank you so much. Oh, you're most welcome, Ben. Happy to chat. Yeah, I, I guess the topic on everyone's mind, at least uh, in one half of this country right now, is the cold weather. And, and I'm just curious what kind of impact that has uh, right on the front lines, because, you know, as as has often been said of late, you know, the emergency departments have become sort of everybody's last line of defense. Uh, what's it look like when it gets this cold uh, where you are? Well, um, paradoxically, it's like during COVID, when something like this hits, we often see our volumes decrease. And it's a bit perplexing as to where what those people are doing with their medical problems. But um, we do see an increase in the number of homeless people that um, come for shelter or for minor issues, understandably. I mean, who could live out in a tent or, you know, in a 
in a sleeping bag in this weather. So honestly, um, I do not mind people coming in and we do have a list of shelters we can send people to. And we do often we'll give them ta taxi vouchers to shelters. So um, it's, it's great when they're open. Right. And, and and that's great that you do that, too, because I don't know if everyone understands that that's uh, that there's that. I mean, I, it, it's not a surprising there's that level of compassion, but it's always nice to have that reminder. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think most of us are, um, you know, walk. We, we have a lot of empathy for people in that situation. You know, I, I remember talking about this last summer and there were ER closures in a lot of places, emergency department closures in a lot of place, places. And then there, there was a sense that there was a lot of momentum going into the fall. There was a meeting with the health ministers. And here we are at the beginning of 2024 having this conversation yet again. If anything, it sounds like the alarm is being sounded uh, even louder than it was six months ago. Well, yeah, the, the problems have been gradually increasing for the last um, three decades. So I've been working at VGH um, in Vancouver for 36 years, and uh, it was busy back 30, 35 years ago, but it's just gradually gotten worse and worse and worse to the point where now it's, um, I feel like we're going down a ski slope and picking up momentum and things are going to get horribly worse than they even are now. And it's hor it's very bad now. So yes, as um, our association, the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians did have a meeting with uh, provincial ministers of health in October and um, asked them to join with us in finding solutions for the crisis. So, you know, I mean, the emergency department crowding is due to access block. And I don't know how well that's understood. It's, you know, the, the Quebec health minister recently said that it was people, um, you know, stay away from the emergency departments, that they shouldn't go there if they have a problem. But that is not the root cause of emergency department crowding. And so this is what we tried to discuss with the health ministers. And um, uh, we we feel that we have some some pretty good solutions. And we would like to um, get together with all of those stakeholders that are involved to address the failing healthcare system that, um, you know, and address the appropriate solutions, not inane solutions that are beside the point, so that we can actually transform uh, the, the whole healthcare system, which in turn will help save emergency department crowding. Tell me about that that access block because I don't think the uh, the Quebec's health minister is alone is alone in, in thinking that that it's sort of people showing up with niggly problems in ERs that are causing some of these big issues. When clearly, what I'm hearing from from the association is that that is not the problem. Correct. Yeah, the problem is that there are sick pa people patients in the emergency departments um, almost everywhere that are there's no beds for those patients to go to up on the wards uh, no no staffed beds so as a as a default solution there remained in stretchers in the emergency de block, uh, department completely blocking the um the incoming patients who are in there who are the sickest and most vulnerable and undifferentiated, undifferentiated in the whole healthcare system so those patients unfortunately um you know are are left out in stretchers in the hallway and we're forced to um, treat patients in non-care spaces because all of our beds are full of inpatients. So like um, say Monday of this week, we had at VGA 51 admitted patients in the emergency department and that's basically as many more stretchers than we have. So you know, how would anybody feel if they had to go and work 
and their office was occupied by a bunch of, um, you know, supplies and they had to work out in the hallway. Well, that's what we do every single shift. And you were saying that it, that it feels in your time there, uh, 35 plus years, that, that it feels it's just gotten worse. What kind of impact does this have uh, on patient care? Because I gather it can be, that must be really frustrating for people in your shoes because you, obviously you, you want to provide the best care possible, but systemically there are a lot of roadblocks in the way now. Well, yeah, it is um, also created another cascade of, of people leaving emergency department because of their moral distress at being unable to care for patients in the way that they feel patients should be cared for. So, you know, we will get like 80, 90 year olds um, sitting out in chairs in the waiting room. And, you know, people cannot, we know that's not right. We apologize to the patients and they say, you know, oh, it's okay, we understand, you know, but it's not right. It, we, when we know so much money goes to healthcare and, and we could be doing better. So, um, it, it's it's caused people to leave like nurses why would they work in an emergency department when they come to work and patients are yelling at them um, because they're waiting so long and they're um, you know they're feeling moral distress because they can't care for them properly and uh, even emergency physicians in their first few years of of, of um, practice I think they're second guessing why did I go into this specialty because it's a gong show you know and um, it, it's really sad and unfortunate. And that that is is compounding the problem, right? And not only are you the first line or the or the last line for or the sort of the the safety net for the whole system right now, you're also on the receiving end of the complaints about the whole system right now. It sounds. Yeah, we are, and I mean, I spend my first minute with every patient apologizing for their um, untenable weight. So you know, um, there we've seen waits of up to 10, 12 hours of, of people that need to be seen that are sitting in the waiting room and understandably, they're really upset. And I just, you know, I say to them, we couldn't agree more with you. Like we're on your side. This is unacceptable, but we're doing the best we can with, with the resources that we have and the situation that we have. And uh, then, then we go on to, you know, to talk about what their medical problem is, but um, you have to acknowledge that the system is absolutely broken in Canada, unfortunately. Uh, Dr. Jill McHugh, I'm sure you don't say that lightly, by the way. This is not, I mean, I've, I've interviewed many doctors over the years, and I've never met one who says anything uh, sensational without without absolutely it coming from the bottom of bottom of your heart. Well, it is true. And I really worry that we are just at the beginning of, of ever worsening situation. And I think, you know, in even 10 years from now, um, more people are going to be dying while they're waiting for care. They're not going to be able to get access to emergency care. And, um, you know, we have had situations where people have died in the waiting room or had very serious adverse events. I mean, we see them on a daily basis, people with, you know, MIs, heart attacks that are picked up um, in the waiting room and people with broken, like, humerus, you know, like an arm or a leg that have been sitting waiting for six hours to be seen. Like, that's not okay. And as we continue to increase the population and build more condo towers and bring more and more people into a system that's already broken, it's just going to get worse and worse. And our population continues to age. So we have, um, you know, more complex medical problems and, um, 
you know, people that have multi, um, multiple different medical problems that are that are complex. So it takes more time. So um, yeah, we need we really strongly feel that we we need to brainstorm with the health ministers. And it needs to be federal coordination to to start to um, change the curve. And we yeah. think that can be done. You know, we have really good solutions that we think can be done, but we need to have collaboration. Dr. Jill McEwen is with us this half hour, attending emergency physician at Vancouver General Hospital, the past president of the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians. We're talking about the situation, the crisis situation in emergency departments right across the country right now. I mean, the alarm has been sounded often and loud. It's getting louder. Uh, Dr. McEwen was saying it feels like for emergency, for people in her shoes, it feels like uh, being on a ski hill and heading downhill at ever increasing speed. Uh, You mentioned some of it before, but where can we start? Because sometimes these problems feel like they've almost grown to a to a point where they're they're so moment, so huge that it's hard to tackle them. Uh, part of the issue, I guess, is we don't have a clear view of what the situation is right across the country. We need solid information to come up with some solid solutions. Yeah, well, we would like to have um, agree on benchmarks for measuring the wait times in the various emergency departments across the province, and we would like to have collaborative collaborative efforts um, between the the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians and um, the Ministers of Health so that we can actually start to implement some important changes. And, you know, we have a lot of ideas about how that can be done. I mean, the underlying thing is that emergency um, care, acute care services should match the population. So um, if the population for example, in Vancouver, is approaching three times of what it was 50 years ago. And there's not one extra care space um, in emergency departments than there were when I started working like 20, 36 years, 36 years ago. Do the math, right? Do the math. Do the math. Yeah, I always say a grade two could figure out that the math doesn't work. And not only that, but within the healthcare system, there needs to be more accountability at every level of um, the system, right from you know primary care to emergency medicine to surgeon surgery to um, the ministers of health, deputy ministers of health, like every every um, level of in the healthcare system needs to be accountable for their own house basically and keep it in order. Right now, the emergency department is the default for all the failure in the healthcare system. And that's why we feel like we're the canaries in the coal mine. We're kind of the default um, ED, emergency departments are the default place that is that is um, suffering because of all the other failures. It, you know, and, and I gather just about everyone who's who pays any attention to this is is acutely aware of that. What do you tell people in the meantime? What do you tell people out there? Uh, what do you tell them about about what they should expect when they turn up with with a health issue at an emergency department? Well, I mean, you know, the the problems, well, we tell people don't stay away from the emergency department. First of all, if you think you have an emergency, come and we'll figure it out. We do have a triage system where, is, where if you're a CTAS-1, somebody that needs to be seen right away, we will move mountains to see you. And so please don't stay away if you feel that there's something that needs to be checked out. Um, So that's what we tell people. But once they get there, I mean, the problem why we have access block is multifactorial. Um, And it it depends on which particular department, which factor is more important. So there's um, 
you know, some areas have lots of long-term care patients that are occupying hospital beds that should go to um, long-term care places. So that's one area that needs to be accountable um, for its population. I mean, as a stopgap measure, Surrey has now rented a motel or motels to house some people that don't need to be in acute care hospital. Um, that's just a Band-Aid, but it, it's much needed. Um, a Band-Aid for the emergency department would be to share the 51 admitted patients equally throughout the hospital. So if each ward had two extra patients, then we wouldn't have 51 patients in eMERGE. People could get in, get looked after in appropriate care spaces in a timely manner. Yeah. Um, some hospitals, you know, like the, the, the mismatch between the population and um, acute care services has led to pay, delays in surgery, delays in accessing, you know, cancer care. There's delays at every level of the system. All of these contribute to emergency department crowding. Um, the lack of primary care physicians. Um, you know, we, we wanna make sure people understand it's not the minor things um, that, that cause crowding. However, people, there's a large percentage of patients who don't have any way of accessing the healthcare system other than coming to the emergency department. So we're not gonna turn those people away or shame them for coming. Like we understand that. So it's multifactorial. Sorry. How about, how about, no, not at all. How about for you after after 36 years? What keeps you getting up and heading into work every single day? Well, that's a really good question. I mean, maybe a little bit of insanity, but to be, to be honest, um, I love what I do. Um, I find it very rewarding to help people. And uh, it, it's always something different that you see in, in the emergency department. So I kind of think of it as riding a bucking bronco. The patients, the medicine is rewarding and it's the same. It's just all the political stuff and the, the access block that, um, you know, is all around you. And you just have to hang on to that horse and, and your principles and values and just keep doing it and try not to let all the other stuff going on around you um, affect that. So, I mean, after 36 years, I still love what I do. I still very feel very privileged to enjoy um, patients and their problems in their hour of need. And uh, it's it, it's been a great career. And yeah, I wouldn't do anything different, but I'm just devastated by the way it's changed and how it seems to be going down the drain unless we don't do something. Well, Dr. McEwen, thank you for your candor. Thank you for your work. I appreciate it. You're most welcome. Thanks for having me, Ben. Folks in Toronto this week, property owners, uh, got a bit of a jolt. They'll have to cope with higher taxes, uh, no doubt. Well, taxes always tend to go only one way, right, up. But in this case, it was a pretty significant jump. So um, this is just a proposal for now, but it looks like 10.5% on property taxes. And it could even be even higher, right? It could be like 16.5% because the city is dealing with uh, some other services they feel the federal government should be reimbursing them for. And they're sort of saying to Ottawa, listen, if you don't give us more money for this, uh, we're going to hike taxes even higher. So it's a bit, of a, a bit of a game of chicken there between the city of Toronto and the federal government. But still, add it all up and it could be a pretty massive tax hike for Toronto property tax payers uh, this year. Now, there are reasons for this, of course, 
course, like many cities, Toronto finds itself in a bit of a budgetary hole and has been for many years. They have more responsibilities and costs. There are rising demand for services. Pandemic hangover issues continue, such as lower revenues from such things as public transit. Um, you know, there's been a bit of a hollowing out of the downtown office area. There's inflation, there's interest rates, so borrowing is more expensive. It all adds up, or better yet, it doesn't add up, right? That's the problem. So one of the few ways that cities have to deal with uh, raising extra funds is property tax hikes is probably one of the only tools they have in their toolkit. Um, so again, Toronto has been facing some budget holes, so this is what they're looking to do. And the head of the city's budget committee says, listen, they went out to talk to the people of Toronto you know, and say, well, what do you want us to do? And services are what people want. Residents in every corner of the city told us to focus on the same things. Delivering safe and reliable transit, contribution from the New Deal will help with that, creating more affordable housing, and keeping our communities safe. Right. But of course, to do that, you have to raise funds to pay for it, right? How do you do that? Uh, joining me now is Enid Slack. She's director of the Institute on Municipal Finance and Governance at the School of Cities at the University of Toronto. Enid, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. Well, this Toronto announcement, I mean, things that happen in Toronto always get a lot of uh, a lot of coverage, but I, I suppose it was when it moved into the double digits that, that this turned into a big story. But uh, a bit of a surprise for ratepayers in Toronto this week, perhaps not a huge one. The mayor sort of telegraphed this a little bit, um, but it, it's a big number. Yes, it is. Uh, they're proposing, and it's not a final number, but at this stage, the city is proposing a 10.5% property tax increase. And, you know, keep keep in mind, although the increase last year was 7%, if we go back to amalgamation in 1998, uh, for the first three years uh, after 1998, there was a zero property tax increase each of those years. And in subsequent years, the property tax increase was at or below, often below the rate of inflation. So to go, you know, to 7% last year and 10.5% being proposed this year is a bit of a shock. Yeah, what is? I mean, I think I think a lot of us could divine why this is necessary uh, according to the city budget itself, or those who plan the city budget. But what is driving the need for this kind of a hike right now? Well, you know, I I, I think Ben, there are a few factors that go into this. One is what I just explained that there have been such low property tax increases uh, in the past. You know, at less than the rate of inflation. But the city has continued to make expenditures. And what's happened is the services are deteriorating. Uh, the quality of the infrastructure is deteriorating. People are starting to notice that every day, whether it's the sidewalks, the roads, the parks. Uh, you know, they're just noticing that the city is falling apart. And the state of good repair budget, in other words, the amount of money that the city needs to keep the infrastructure in a state of good repair keeps going up because, you know, we, we've neglected a lot of these things. So that's part of the reason. The, the other is all of the challenges that the city is facing. And this doesn't just apply to Toronto. This applies to cities across Canada. Most Many cities are still suffering from the pandemic. You know, cities that have uh, major transit systems uh, still have not seen ridership go back up to pre-pandemic levels. That means transit fare revenues have not gone back up to pre-pandemic levels. So there's there's a hole there. Uh, there are still added costs, you know, in social services and public health arising from the pandemic. So so that is still there to some extent. We've also seen 
you know, a period of inflation and high interest rates. Well, inflation not only means that the city is facing higher costs to deliver services, but it also means that people are suffering. People are having trouble making ends meet. And so they come to the city oftentimes uh, for more services. And the high interest rates mean that the costs of borrowing uh, to pay for infrastructure have gone up. And, you know, I, I can go through a list of, of many more challenges, and I hope we'll get into them. But there's just a couple uh, that have figured into this budget and this tax increase. So less revenue, not enough revenue, more demands, and more expensive to borrow. I mean, it's a perfect storm for a lot of municipalities. And as you mentioned, Toronto is by no means alone. It just happens to be the one we're talking about this week. Cities right across the country uh, have been imposing pretty significant property tax hikes compared to, say, uh, those of the past. That's true. I mean, we've seen, you know, Vancouver going up 7.5%, Calgary going up 7.8%. Uh, I think Edmonton 6.6%, Halifax is almost 5 I mean, these aren't as large as what's being proposed in Toronto, but they're larger than they have been in the past. I think we're seeing a trend here. Right. And, and to be fair, and listeners should know this, I, I believe, and I've never owned a home in Toronto, but I believe property tax rates in Toronto in general were a bit lower than in other places. I certainly owned a home in Ottawa and property taxes there were pretty pretty significant. Yes, uh, you know, this is true. Um, Property tax rates on residential properties uh, are generally lower in Toronto than the surrounding region, but also than other cities in Canada. When we look at at the struggles that the the cities are having right now, and again, a lot of this, I think, is politics in many ways. It it seemed to me for a very long time that, and you know, no one likes to pay a ton of taxes, obviously, but if you want the things that you want to make a city attractive and efficient and for things to run on time, for your transit system to be efficient, but you're continuously promised you'll never have to pay for it. Well, something has to give somewhere, doesn't it, at some point? That's right. It doesn't add up. Uh, it d- definitely doesn't add up. People do want good services, but they have to understand they have to pay for them. So in Canada, municipalities are not allowed to budget for an operating deficit. In other words, for their operating budget, revenues have to equal expenditures. If they don't, you know, it, it's not rocket science here. You either have to cut your expenditures or increase your revenues. Um, and that's the only way to do it. Right. And over time, we've seen, of course, that, and as you've mentioned, that these issues have sort of accrued. They've, they've built up because tax, for a long time, they've been, they haven't been running deficits, but they don't, have, they don't have enough money to pay for what they hope to pay for. Well, that's true. And, and you know, I, I sort of mentioned to you that there are other pressures that that weren't there before. For example, the impact of climate change. So municipalities not only have to respond to extreme weather events, which we know are bigger and more frequent than they have been in the past, and there, there are costs associated with those events, but cities are also on the forefront of reducing GHG emissions because a lot of GHG emissions uh, happen in cities, and so they have to retrofit buildings, they have to electrify transit, there are a whole lot of expenditures they have to make to reduce those emissions. We've seen an affordable housing crisis. I mean, that's the big issue these days, and cities are involved in in providing housing. We have an opioid crisis in, in many cities, most cities across Canada, and that's putting pressure on, on the finances of municipalities. And we have increasing immigration and ref- numbers of refugee claimants. And these are, you know, these are decisions that are made by the federal government, uh, but have costs for municipalities, at least in the short term, in providing housing and, and social services 
to, to people who come to this country. So there are a lot of old problems that the cities are facing, but a lot of new problems as well. Enid Slack is with us this half hour, director of the Institute on Municipal Finance and Governance at the School of Cities at the University of Toronto. We're talking about tax hikes because Toronto, of course, in the news this week with a big one, 10.5% is what's proposed. You know, over many, many years, really, tax rates in Toronto haven't really kept up with the cost of things, the amount of responsibility the city has, and so on. Uh, Enid, there's been a lot of talk about, I mean, property taxes are really just about, as far as I can tell, almost the only thing that municipalities such as Toronto can rely on to raise funds. And it seems like a bit of a, a bit of a broken system, doesn't it? Well, it does. But let me let me first say that the, the city of Toronto, unlike other municipalities in Ontario, can levy a land transfer tax. Mm-hmm. And so they, they do get funding from that. Toronto and other cities in Canada levy a municipal accommodation uh, tax, so like a hotel tax or a tourist tax, yeah. A tourist tax, um, but they're fairly small revenues, and uh, you know, cities in uh, some cities in British Columbia and, and Toronto levy, and others in Ontario, uh, a vacancy tax as well. So, I mean, there are some other taxes at the local level, but the big one is the property tax. And then the cities can also also levy user fees. So for transit, water, garbage collection, you'll see user Parking, fees. Parking, right? Yes, yeah. Parking, yeah. of course, and and they receive transfers from the federal and provincial government. So that's those are basically the revenues that they have, um, and all of this, of course, is determined by provincial legislation what they can levy and what they can't. And this system, I have to say, goes back to the eighteen hundreds. Uh, you know, to the Baldwin Act in Ontario that set out with the revenues that municipalities could levy. And and that was at a very different time in terms of what services cities provided. Right. Are there alternatives? I mean, you know, Andrew Coyne was writing today in The Globe. I mean, clearly one of the big ones always has been to cut back, right, to cut back. But it feels like there's not much meat on the bone these days, especially in a place like Toronto, where if you're even if you don't live in Toronto, you notice more and more people complaining about the state of things. Are there other alternatives? I mean, one of the mentions was sort of road tolls. That's always been controversial. A municipal sales tax. That's always been relatively controversial as well, although talked about. Do those make sense? Well, uh, let's go back to the the cutting expenditures. I mean, any large organization is going to have inefficiencies, um, and cities do too, but so does the federal government, provincial government, and private sector institutions. So we always need to look at finding efficiencies, and that's that's the first step. I mean, and the city of Toronto has done that to the tune of, I think, $600 million, something like that. But cutting services for cities is, is hard because cities provide what we call frontline services you know it's it's the transit it's the water it's it's garbage collection it's parks and libraries it, you know these are things that that people use on a daily basis and it's it's very hard to cut back in ter- in terms of looking at other revenues uh, you know road tolls are a good idea toronto tried to do that a number of years ago but the province refused to let them do it. As I said, this is all determined by provincial legislation. They weren't allowed to do it. But the two highways that they wanted to toll have now been uploaded to the province. So they are their responsibility now. But road road tolls are a good idea, but not so much for bringing in revenue as for changing people's behavior. So if you want to get people out of cars and onto transit and and bicycles and walking, uh, road tolls are a great way to do that but they're not necessarily a huge revenue raiser. 
I'm right. trying to re- remember what else you mentioned. You mentioned uh, a municipal sales municipal tax. municipal sales tax, which has come up yeah. before. Um, I know. I mean, I've been in cities that have them. I believe Seattle has one. I think that's not far from where I am. But that also is another one. I mean, a lot of this is out of the out of the power of the city itself to be able to do this. But a municipal sales tax, I mean, you know, these can be regressive and that often, uh, you know, sort of gets people's back up over these things. But another potential idea. Well, municipal sales tax, a lot of people have talked about, but, but you know, people mean different things by that. And so when, when I think of a sales tax at the local level, I see uh, municipalities as piggybacking on to the provincial or federal system. I don't think it, it would pay to levy their own taxes because it would be administratively very costly. There are U.S. cities do do have sales taxes. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not like it, it isn't done in other places. And other cities around the world have income taxes. If we if we go to well, some U.S. cities have income taxes. But if we go to the, the Scandinavian countries, they, they're not federal systems. Generally, they are what we call unitary systems. So there's just a central government and local governments. There's no provincial mm-hmm. or state governments in the middle. And the social services are delivered at the local level. And those municipalities have income taxes. And I would argue that makes sense because social services are designed to redistribute income from high-income households to low-income households. And the income tax is better at that than the property tax. Okay. I mean, so often it feels like the conversations we have about politics really focus on, you know, Ottawa and whatever your provincial capital happens to be. How can individual people sort of advocate better for their city within this system? Because it feels like this is probably the most important part of our lives is is municipal politics. And yet we spend so much time obsessing about what's something that's happening often thousands of kilometers away from where our garbage is collected, where our buses show up, where our sidewalks are. Well, no, that's true. Um, you know, I, I think it changed a bit during the pandemic because people really began to see how important local governments are. They really were on the f- on the front lines of this pandemic. And I, I think when you see proposed tax increases, people become interested in local governments. And, you know, many cities have, well, most cities have open budget meetings. All, all cities do, but a lot of cities have participatory budgeting where, you know, people can come and actually make some suggestions. How you get people out to do that, I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, the never-ending question. Edith, thank you so much. You're welcome. This is a very special segment coming up and a preview of something that's happening on Monday across Chorus and also something we'll be doing a bit of tonight. Monday is often referred to as the saddest day of the year, Blue Monday. Now, it's not necessarily scientific, but it does lend uh, credence to the idea that there is no doubt that this time of year, the winter blahs or blues uh, can set in. So coming up on Monday, a special segment that will air live on our stations in Ontario, Manitoba, Alberta, NBC called Coping with registered psychologist Dr. Gans Ferentz and therapist Yona Budd, who hosted At Your Best here on Chorus. Uh, timing will depend on where you are, with Dr. Ferentz and Yona Budd joining Shea Ganim on 6.30 Chet and QR in Calgary from 10 to 11 a.m. local time on Monday. Mike Smith on CKNW and affiliates in Kamloops and Kelowna from 10 to 11 a.m. Pacific on Monday. While listeners in Ontario can call into the Kelly Cutrera show from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern again on Monday. And Dr. Ferentz and Yona Bud will join Jim Toth for our listeners in Manitoba from 2 to 3 p.m. Central on Monday. So you can see it's all staggered out using the time zones well to make sure they can uh, speak to every audience. And you'll get to call in and get some advice. It's called Coping.
again, with uh, Yonabud, therapist Yonabud, and Dr. Gans Ferentz, a registered psychologist. Well, we thought we would invite Dr. Uh, Ferentz on tonight for a preview to talk a bit about him as well, because he has a really interesting story about how he came here. He speaks from experience when he gives this advice. And uh, we thought he'd let him, we'd share some questions with him from you tonight. If you have any, 1-866-399-9898 uh, is the, uh, 1-877-399-9898 is the text line, 1-877-399-9898. You can share those with us tonight. And we'll talk to uh, Dr. Ferentz for the next half hour. Send them in. We might hang on for a bit longer and uh, we'll share those as we go on. Uh, Dr. Ferentz, thank you so much for your time tonight. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Uh, this is a this is a really interesting opportunity to do this with this way. But I was reading, of course, uh, your webpage and, and finding out a bit more about you. And, and you really come from a, a place of knowledge when it comes to these issues about burnout and stress and trying to figure out uh, how to get back on your feet. Well, yeah, this is the thing. It's it's there's personal experience as well as the professional experience of working, um, you know, in psychology for you know thirty years or so. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm on, uh, what they say, both sides of the couch on this one. I think, you know, like, uh, I, I have helped a lot of people deal with burnout, uh, recover from it, also prevent it, but I've also dealt with it personally myself in terms of being the go-to guy in my family. Um, a lot of, a lot of talk right now about being in the Sandwich generation, for example, you know, raising kids, but also having older aging parents to look after. So there are a lot of lot of like uh, stresses that we go through at, at certain times of our lives, but especially after we've just come through COVID and then this time of year is kind of rough. So like I said, I know it personally, but uh, but also as a professional. Yeah, and and it's you know again you know Blue Monday is it has you know sometimes sometimes people you know my mom's a science journalist so sometimes she sort of <laughs> take me to, take me to task on using it because it was kind of a, you know, but it does. It does specify or it does remind us that this time of year, once the holidays are done and the bills are coming in, that yeah. it can be a bit – and, you know, it's obviously bitterly cold where you are tonight, so uh, you will yes. probably won't be getting out much in, in Edmonton. But uh, it is a difficult time of year, and you must see that uh, firsthand. Yeah, yeah. This time of year is rough. I, we, you, you nailed it, right? It's uh, we, We're coming off of the holidays, and when we – just generally build up something like the holidays and we look forward to it. There's a lot of energy expended. It's a really kind of a high point for a lot of people. But then when that's done, there can be sort of a rebound effect uh, that a lot of people feel. Then on top of that, you have the cold weather, you got the dark days. Uh, we don't have the same signals physiologically to help our brains create serotonin from the uh, the type of light we need because of the shorter days. And and then, like you said, the bills are coming due now for, for Christmas holidays, right? And uh, so it can be a rough time for a lot of people. And Blue Monday was kind of a marketing thing that the travel agents were kind of setting up. But as you as you pointed out, it is a great opportunity for us to put our minds towards uh, psychological well-being, mental health, the kind of things that people struggle with this time of year and also what to do about them to stay healthy, stay happy and stay functional. Yeah. We did get a text from, uh, from someone uh, who says, uh, you know, dear Ben, I'm a 59 year old male. I shared this with you a bit earlier so you could have a quick look and it sort of goes through a, a series of, of, of health issues that uh, this person's had over several years, but more to the present. Uh, he, was, he was saying, I recently went through a divorce, which fortunately was amicable, amicable, although I am now stuck living alone. I've always worked in a very gratifying job until three years ago. I was rear-ended uh, three times within six months. The severe back pain forced me um, into which 
is now into what is now a full-blown painkiller addiction. I've reached my limit now, experiencing death anxiety that I'm really struggling with to the point that I do not want to sleep because I'm afraid I won't wake up. Now, these are these are some pretty challenging situations, uh, but but clearly this is that kind of I guess it's kind of a, a despair, right? A little bit, uh, Doctor yeah. Ferentz. Yeah, there. Well, you know, you pile up a lot of uh, really bad situations on top of each other, bad events, and yeah, this is this is something that you know everybody has their limits. So this is really hard to hear. Um, it's it's one of those things where you know, although he, you know, you're afraid of sleeping, I totally get that because you're afraid of like not waking up. But also, sleep is one of the main things that we can do to help ourselves manage. Uh, sleep and exercise. So, um, you know, I really encourage this, this individual to get some one-on-one uh, -on -one help if they can, if it's available to them, because this is, this is a serious thing. Um, when, when somebody has, uh, has gone through these types of events, when they've, uh, you know, you, you pile these things on top of each other, especially, it can wear you down. And like I said, everybody has a limit that they, you know, we, we all can carry only so much, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me a bit about the me factor, because it's something that comes up uh, that you talk about. And it feels like it's important in, in all cases uh, to, to sort of stop and remind yourself of a few things. Yeah. So, you know, the me factor is really about the idea that we have to uh, well, it's not just to have to, we, it's our right and our responsibility to actually look after ourselves. When we take the time to prioritize our well-being, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about burnout um, or, you know, just, just with this unfortunate gentleman who've got, who's gone through so many hard times. When we have the, when we understand that it's our place to look after ourselves in terms of priority, uh, making sure we're making um, good decisions for ourselves as well as doing the things that we need to um, fill the happy bank, so to speak, you know, um, what happens is we end up in a better state ourselves. And when we're in a better state, when we feel better, we do better. And that's one of the things that we are not always taught. We're, we're kind of taught to push through. We're taught to be tough. We're taught to, you know, nose to the grindstone, shoulder to the plow kind of thing, right? But realistically, when we take the time to um, to really have some uh, some self care and uh, also good people around us, that actually helps us to do better in everything that we face. Doctor Gans Ferrance is with us this half hour. Uh, he'll be uh, alongside Yona Bud, a name you might recognize. Uh, they'll be sort of co together. They'll be doing uh, a segment called Coping right across the Chorus Radio Network on Monday, live. You'll be able to call in, uh, depending where you are. We'll give you the, all the times uh, again a little bit later. Uh, but if you have any questions for Dr. Ferentz now, please let me know. Uh, the text line is one 9898 uh, We're talking about the winter blues. Blue Monday, of course, is coming up uh, on Monday, the third Monday of January, often sort of cited as being the saddest day of the year, perhaps not overly scientific, but a reminder that this can be a tough time of year for a lot of people, it's cold. Uh, the, the, the high of the holidays are, are over. Maybe you've made some New Year's resolutions and you're struggling to keep them and sort of all that resetting you think you'd do. Well, maybe it's not working out uh, quite as well as you'd hoped. But 
whatever it may be, whatever is stressing you, let, let us know, 1-877-399-9898, and we'll share those uh, with Dr. Ferentz to try and get you some advice as well. Uh, what struck me again, and I was just mentioning it, is um, this is kind of the time of the time of the month where even sort of the oh, it's a whole new year thing. Well, everything will be kind of different. I'm going to reset for the new year on, at, on January 1st. By now, you're sort of like, in, you're, you're into the grind, right? You're kind of into the grind. So I find what's hard at this time of year is staying positive is kind of tough, uh, at the, at, you know, in, through the sort of the dark days of winter. Uh, absolutely right. And, you know, you, you pointed out that sometimes we set our um, New Year's resolutions around this time. And, you know, sometimes by this time, we might have blown them already too, you know? <laughs> Um, but the, the idea is that we can reset at any moment. Um, the new year does have that, that sort of natural feeling we can reset then, but anytime that we find that we need to start again, that's a good thing to do. Staying positive is such an important thing when we're looking at not just, um, meeting our new year's resolutions, but also dealing with burnout or stress at all. Uh, so uh, you know, anything that we can do to be positive really helps. One of the things that I really encourage my clients to do is to practice celebration. Celebration, I say, is the fuel for future success. But it's one of those things that really does help uh, protect us from stress, protect us from a lot of other things. Because what happens when we celebrate is we actually change our physiology. We actually start to, um, you know, have some positive hormones go through our bodies. Our brains work better. Uh, we feel more energized. And when you celebrate, you're in a better state. And like we said, uh, you know, I always say, the better you feel, the better you do. So when when you're feeling better, when you can celebrate, you feel better. So you actually perform better. And that creates a, um, you know, a, a virtuous cycle. It, it builds on itself. The nice thing about this and one of the little tricks to staying positive is, Sometimes we don't always have things that we're consciously aware of that we can celebrate, but we don't have to just celebrate for ourselves. We can actually celebrate for other people. That's the beauty of celebration. So when you see somebody else have some good fortune or you can count your blessings or remember the things that are going well for you, despite whatever challenges you may be facing, that actually starts to break the negative snowball that happens, the negative vicious cycle, and starts creating that positive cycle of good hormones, uh, focus on something positive. And then we tend to see more of that positive thing and attract more of that positive thing and also be able to create more of that positive thing in our lives. Yeah, because it's so easy when you're feeling a bit down to sort of look at someone else, sort of begrudge other people their their, their <laughs> happiness. I mean, it happens to all of us. And, and social media is no is no help sometimes, of course, because you're always sort of uh, showered with curated images of people having a good time. But sometimes if you just look at, at a friend of yours or someone that you know who's had a success and you celebrate alongside with them, I imagine it does go a long way in sort of changing the way you feel about things. Well, it's, yeah, it changes the way you feel, but also changes your energy, which then changes your experience. The way our brain works is that whatever we focus on, um, we tend to get more of. Uh, there's a part of our brain called the reticular activating system. Most people have had this experience where they go shopping and maybe they buy a car, right? And um, once they buy the car, they drive it off the lot. All of a sudden, you see a whole bunch of those cars all over the place, right? Oh, there's a red one. There's a blue one, right? Um, and right. what that is, is that by purchasing that particular automobile, you have told that part of your brain that this thing is significant to you. And so that part of your brain, I call it like the bloodhound or the bouncer, it goes out and fetches, it also lets certain things in. But that part of your brain will go and seek and pay attention to that thing that you said is important. 
So this is working all the time. We can't shut it off. It's just uh, how we're built. So when we focus on negative stuff, we focus on what we don't have. We focus on bitterness or jealousy or whatever that might be. That's what we see more of. We actually see the thing that we're trying to avoid. Um, but if we focus on celebrating for a friend, celebrating the good fortune of somebody who maybe, let's say, they won the lottery or, you know, like somebody got a free meal or whatever it might be, we start to feel good. We start to notice the positives that are, are in our environment. And then that part of our brain goes and seeks more, it finds more and gives you more. And that creates that virtuous cycle we were talking about before. And what that does is it changes not only your physiology, but your brain chemistry and your mood. So after a while, you're just more fun to be around. You're more interesting, you know, attract more positive people into your, um, into your life. And, you know, your life just tends to improve, right? So that protects you from stress and just helps you do better generally. Dr. Gans Ferentz is with us this half hour. We're talking about something that he'll be doing alongside Yona Budd on Monday called Coping. They'll be taking live calls uh, right across the country at different times of the day. I'll share all that with you uh, in just a minute, all those times, so you can be sure to call in. Uh, this is a really interesting opportunity, uh, I, I think, Dr. Ferentz. It should be, um, you, I mean, the whole coping idea on Blue Monday strikes me as a real chance to sort of connect with a lot of Canadians on a day where people might be looking for a bit of advice and a bit of support. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think, you know, one of my reasons for doing this is because, well, two reasons, I guess. One is because a lot of folks really don't know much about like psychology and mental health and therapists and that sort of thing. And there, there unfortunately is still uh, quite a bit of stigma around around things, right? And so being able to just hear and talk to us uh, on a regular basis or just, you know, in, in this with this opportunity is a way hopefully to make people more comfortable with this whole idea. And then also, uh, there are a lot of really kind of simple, quick fixes that people can do in their lives that actually make a huge difference when they put into practice. And unfortunately, because, um, you know, we as psychologists, we as therapists, we haven't done a great job in getting this out to the, pu the public all the time. I mean, it's getting better now, but, uh, but that's, this is the opportunity to get some of that, you know, um, down-to-earth, real nuts-and-bolts types of advice that can actually help people improve their lives, um, their relationships, manage stress, have better communication, and generally just uh, have better quality of life. Yeah, we could all use a little bit of that. I think uh, if you have a question for Dr. Ferentz, one 399 is the text line. We did have a question from Catherine. She was talking a bit about protein and mental health and so on. Uh, I sent it to you earlier. Uh, diet, can can make a difference in your life as well. I don't know how much you deal with that specifically, but uh, it, it sounded like a good question to me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, diet is huge. Um, so when you look at like just kind of creating a good life for yourself, right, or managing stress or dealing with like trauma or anything like that, there are basically four pillars you want to look at. Uh, the first one is sleep. Always like sleep is kind of the foundation of everything. When we sleep, we um, we replenish our brain chemistry, we heal, we build muscle, we lose weight, we do a bunch of good stuff when we're sleeping. The second pillar is diet, diet and hydration. When you have good diet, you know, uh, eat the right stuff, uh, good nutritious food, but also eat often and not, not starve yourself, uh, no fad diets, that actually gives you the building blocks to create that brain chemistry, to create the good hormones, to to deal with stuff. And, you know, I don't know, um, 
there was a <laughs> Snickers had a really good commercial out before I was called, you know, like when, when you're not yourself, when you're hungry, basically is, was the yeah, of that. Yeah, with Joe Collins. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Exactly. That, yeah. And so, so it's true. Like when you're not, when you don't have the right fuel, it's hard to run the machine. Right. And so um, protein is one of those things like our hormones, uh, all the brain chemicals are protein based. So making sure we have good, good, good building blocks helps us to have good mental health, puts us in a better mood so we can manage stress better. And, you know, for me, I know I'm easier to be around when I'm, you know, <laughs> satisfied and not hungry. Well, Dr. Ferentz, I look forward to hearing this uh, all on Monday. And uh, yeah, best of luck. And thank you so much for a preview tonight and for taking some questions as well. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Ben. I appreciate it. We're going to head to Taipei because there's a presidential election there that's taking place today as well as legislative elections. It's a big deal. It's uh, There's going to be a lot of big elections this year coming up, none bigger, of course, perhaps, than what's going to happen in uh, the U.S. in November. But uh, on a list of elections to watch, this was a big one and the first one. And, of course, whenever there's a vote in Taiwan, it has implications uh, that uh, that are far beyond its borders. Um, so today, holding presidential and parliamentary elections, uh, as always the case for the small island's democracy, and the results will reverberate well beyond its borders. Uh, it's being watched closely by leaders in Beijing, of course. They have their favorite in this. It's not the incumbent. In fact, the president has had to step down. She's been in power for eight years. So like the U.S., they have term limits. But the party that she's with, uh, they've been in power for eight years. Uh, they're quite pro-Taiwan or pro-independence, to, to, to coin that phrase. Um, and the government in China does not like them. They're far more uh, in favor. They would like to see the more nationalist KMT come into power. They've been in power in the past. They're sort of have a much softer tone towards China. But with all that's gone on in the region over the past little while, including what's happened in Hong Kong of late, people watching the Taiwan election from afar uh, worry about what closer relationships with China might look like. Have a listen. The question is, how do we go about it? How can we continue to maintain our way of life? We've seen what happened to Hong Kong, and a lot of people really don't want to be in that position. Right. So now you may ask yourself, why does an election so far away, so far across the Pacific, matter much to us here in Canada? Well, there are a lot of reasons. Geopolitically, of course, it's a big deal. Uh, confrontation over between China and Taiwan would logically escalate, would logically escalate, pull in many other nations, uh, specifically the U.S. and allies and so on, but also us. Also, it would reshape um, the region. And of course, you know, Taiwan is a young democracy, uh, relatively to some others in the area. And so that's another issue as well. It's sort of part of our view of the world about uh, promoting democracy in countries such as Taiwan. And then there is trade. They call it the Silicon Dome, I believe, in, in Taiwan itself. But Taiwan's semiconductor companies are so crucial to the, to the global supply chain. They produced 60% of the world's semiconductor chips in 2022. They generated $40.2 billion out of the 57.4 billion made worldwide. So you can see just how important they are as a supplier of these critical uh, critical parts to just about everything we use and run these days. And if it were to come under Chinese control, of course, that would be, uh, it would be a different scenario. Um, so with all that in mind, uh, let's head to let's head to Taipei, where Charles Burton, senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, is uh, working there for uh, this election. And he joins me now. Charles, thank you so much. Welcome back. It's good to speak with you, Ben. 
Tell me a bit about the mood there, because uh, elections, I suspect, I've never actually covered an election in Taiwan, but I suspect like so many things, the election there is really about the Taiwanese voters, not about the whole world watching from uh, and, and anticipating. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, you know, this is my third uh, election where I've been on the International Election Observation Delegation. And certainly this one is much lower key and much less um, electricity in the air than the two previous ones where the Democratic uh, Progressive Party uh, won under Tsai Ing-wen. I think that um, people are largely inured to the China threat and are not confident that any of the three parties running can really resolve the ongoing economic issues in Taiwan, particularly the high cost of housing and um, low wages for young people. The Democratic Progressive Party has been in power now for eight years. So, you know, similar to another country we know well, Canada, people start to get a bit tired of that government and notice more corruption and and a lack of vision and uh, and motivation and probably would like to change to a, another government to give those people a bit of a rest. The only party in Taiwan that really supports democracy, freedom and human rights is the Democratic Progressive Party. The other rival party, the Nationalist Party, the KMT, the party of Chiang Kai-shek, is yeah. running second. Right. But their policy towards China is... Uh, you know, more or less to try and appease the Chinese regime so they won't invade. And you have a third party, the Taiwan People's Party, which is gaining a very large amount of uh, support from young people. And their slogan is, um, we're not going to be blue, which would be not the nationalists, the blue party. We're not going to be green, the Democratic Progressive Party, protect Taiwan. So I think like a lot of elections around the world, we seem to be losing the plot with regard to democracy and um, you know, the prospects of increased hostility across the Taiwan Strait and the idea that China might take advantage of weakness in the Taiwan political system and try and move towards annexing Taiwan into China seems to be there and happening and people here just don't seem to really be engaged to try and, try and do something to preserve Taiwan's democracy and freedom and autonomy. It's interesting because one would think as an outsider that this election more than any others previously would be would be electric because of all that's happened in Ukraine and so on. And, you know, the sort of the hardening of the rhetoric from Beijing and Nancy Pelosi's visit and, and America and, and all the different things that go on. But I guess all politics eventually at some level is local. Right. So listeners understand, I mean, the KMT here, uh, China has not been a neutral observer in this election as it has not been a neutral observer in previous elections. They deeply dislike the incumbent DPP, the uh, Democratic Progressive Party, whose president, by the way, the president is is now stepping down. He's been in uh, been there for eight years, so there's a replacement in uh, who will be running or is running. But they've obviously very much in favor of the KMT winning here. They don't make any bones about that. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, Tsai Ing Wen, the previous leader of the DPP, the Democratic Progressive Party, which is uh, still a very popular figure, is um, like the United States, uh, constitutionally limited to two terms. So the new leader, William Lai, is identified as being, uh, by China at least, as being much more uh, pro-independentist. And despite his asserting that he will continue the policies of, of Tsai Ing-wen if he wins, which appears likely, you know, there is a lot of suspicion on all sides that he represents a fraction within that party that may be a bit more radical than, than uh, Ms. Tsai. 
I think um, in general, you know, this is an important election for Canada of the, I believe, something like 70 elections scheduled for 2024, which, you know, could well include our own country. Maybe this one is the most important one after, of course, the United States election, where we don't know if, you know, Donald Trump comes back and wants to do things like uh, withdraw from NATO. Right. But this election could be quite crucial in terms of the future of the Indo-Pacific region and the possibility of military confrontation mounting if the nationalists, the KMT, get back into power and essentially start to do things that China would like in terms of strengthening China's hand in the Taiwan Straits. The nationalist slogan with regard to the election is that it's a choice between war and peace. And uh, China has picked up on the nationalist slogan and says the same thing. In other words, yeah. if you elect and, and prosperity and decline, Progressive right? Party, you know, <laughs> prosperity and war. decline. Yeah. But most people are not buying that here. I mean, it's sort of like uh, crying wolf. The idea that uh, war is about to break out with China has been has been broached so often and so many times that I think a lot of people are just fed up with it and, and just don't want to think about this anymore. And that yeah. is unfortunately a, a development which could be quite dangerous for global peace. I guess in this case, I mean, again, there are concerns within the country itself uh, about, as you mentioned, wages, housing, very familiar issues. And I suppose at some point, politics becomes about those those issues as well. That's the, the Taiwan People's Party, that third party, which they've not really seen before. Uh, and the former mayor of Taipei is, is making some inroads as well. So, I mean, what is your best sense of how this is going to turn out? Well, you know, the, the DPP presidential polls show only a a gap of 3%. And that was uh, 10 days ago. They don't allow polls within 10 days of the election, although we do get some indications from the bookies who are, you know, doing illegal gambling on the election as to how that goes. I don't know, maybe the bookies stats are more accurate than the official government stats. It's going to be very close. It looks like it'll be the DPP, but at the same time, they're having elections for their parliament, the legislative UN, and it appears that the Democratic Progressive Party will not gain a majority in the in the yuan. And so it could be that the Taiwan People's Party that you're talking about, the new party by the mayor of tai, Taipei, who, you know, rejects the old politics of the nationalists and the politics of the DPP, but sort of uncertain exactly where he stands on things, could hold a balance of power in, in parliament. And the nationalists and the, the Taiwan People's Party could block um, attempts by the Democratic Progressive Party to increase defense spending to defend Taiwan against you know, a mounting security challenge from China. Charles Burton is a senior fellow at the McDonald-Laurier Institute. He's in Taipei today, where it is, in fact, Election Day, one of the first big elections in a year of elections. And everyone's watching, including in Beijing, to see whether the Democratic Progressive Party, who are uh, very pro-Taiwan, will be re-elected. This will be a third consecutive term for them, which I don't think has actually been done before since the no. dictatorship fell. And, uh, of course, the KMT, who, are, who advocate for much closer ties to China. Beijing's made it very clear who they want to see win. Voters certainly won't heed uh, those warnings. The G- politics of all this what happens if the dpp win again do you think charles well I, you know i think certainly their range for options with regard to china are limited you know they want to have a policy that gives china a sense of risk if they if if china attempts to take over taiwan and to give china incentive to um continue to negotiate with taiwan to try and come up with some sort of resolution that will resolve China's 
demand that Taiwan be annexed into the mainland system. But, you know, the essential difference between the DPP and the the KMT, and, you know, there's still a prospect that we could see a KMT government, Mm -hmm. is that the KMT believes in what's called the 92 consensus, which was an agreement between China and the nationalist government in 1992 that states that there is only one China. You know, the KMT doesn't propose that that Taiwan declare a Republic of Taiwan and, uh, you know, suggest that there should be some way for China and the People's Republic of China as China is and the Republic of China as Taiwan officially is to come up with some sort of resolution to protect Taiwan's existing political freedoms, but um, not declare independence. So I think from the point of view of China, they much prefer the the nationalists because I think it gives them an opportunity to continue to progress in penetrating Taiwan society and economy. One of the very unexpected developments was that the Taiwan People's Party and subsequently the Nationalist Party said that they would be reviving the Cross-Straits Trade Services Agreement, which was an agreement that was uh, broached in uh, 2014, which led to a massive protest by young people called the Sunflower Movement and occupation of the Taiwan legislature by students. So it's puzzling that they would you know, suggest much further economic integration into China um, when the first time it was proposed, it led to political chaos and protest and the government had to back down from it. But, you know, there are just a lot of unknown factors in, in China-Taiwan relations. And, you know, Taiwan politics is very, very complicated. Uh, you know, I'm a specialist in Chinese communist politics out of Beijing, and I find that one easier to understand than what's going on here today. Yeah, that's saying something. When I was there, of course, the KMT were in power, so there had been this great rapprochement with, with with China. In fact, there was a lot of tourism going on and so on. And I gather, of course, that in, as China has wont to do, that since uh, the party that it didn't like came into power eight years ago now, that uh, that has dried up quite a bit. The geopolitics of this, because clearly if a party that uh, that China doesn't like is elected and it continues the saber rattling that also puts pressure on Taiwan's allies, such as the U.S. and Canada, to be seen to be standing up for them, which is uh, which, again, it creates tension geopolitically. Yeah, I think so, particularly if China really is looking that feeling that the trend is moving towards Taiwan achieving some form of de jure independence as opposed to the de facto independence they already have. And the DPP says, well, Taiwan is already an independent place uh, called the Republic of China, at least formally. And therefore, there's no need for them to to do anything more about independence because they are, in fact, independent. And, you know, there's, there's logic in that when you get to the airport in Taiwan, the uh, the Chinese, uh, mainland Chinese tourists have to line up in the same line as Canadians, as foreigners. So that is true. So if, if Taiwan feels that the situation is moving against its overall, what they refer to as the sacred mission to uh, restore Taiwan to the embrace of the motherland, then it could hasten more dangerous military activities to bring Taiwan under the, the non-democratic Chinese communist rule out of Beijing. But if the nationalists get in, of course, you know, the nationalists is a you know, somewhat pro-China force, even though they, they insist that they are committed to Taiwan's um, political freedoms. You know, how that will play out in Washington, which is so strongly um, anti-China these days and a strong partisan consensus that China presents a, a serious strategic uh, threat to global peace, 
you know, could suggest that relations between Taiwan and the United States could become somewhat strained under a, a nationalist regime, and that could, you know, further the the gradual absorption of Taiwan into the mainland and getting into a situation where Taiwan really would have no choice but to simply negotiate something with China that would lead to Taiwan seeking to ceasing to be a politically independent entity in the Indo-Pacific. Right. And that, of course, would be bad news globally. I mean, let's bear in mind, you know, Taiwan has unique expertise in producing these high-level computer chips. Oh, yeah. That's transferred to the control of China. We have a big problem in terms of our high-tech future. Yeah, before Canadians forget uh, what value Taiwan brings to us as a, as a trade partner, uh, free of China, by the way, uh, remember remember the semiconductors. Remember the semiconductors. It's a, it's a huge big deal. Charles Burton, uh, good luck today. And uh, yeah, we'll be looking to see what the results are. Thank you so much. It's great to speak with you. 